Welcome to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast, where guests share learning from life experiences to help others on the same path. Welcome everyone to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast. I'm really happy today to welcome our guest, who today is Giles Paley Phillips, the multiple award-winning author of a number of children's books, including The Fearsome Beastie, Little Bell and the Moon, and Things You Never Knew About Dinosaurs. Hi, Giles. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. It's brilliant to have the opportunity to speak to you and hear some of your experiences and some of the things that you wish you'd known earlier in your journey. So as well as being a best-selling and award-winning author, you're also in a band called Burnt House and the co-host of a podcast called The Blank Podcast, where you interview guests like Louis Theroux, Gary Lineker and Roisin Connerty about those moments in life where your mind goes blank. Yeah, wow. It does, yeah, it does sound like I'm really busy. <laughs> You've got lots yeah, going on. Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, and this was nice because it's nice to have lots of different things going on as well. Yeah. You know, not just doing the one thing. Mm. So I'm quite lucky in that respect. If, one, if I'm getting sort of tired or, or haven't got any... I guess if the creative juices aren't flowing for one, I can pick up another thing and mm. run with that. So that's quite nice. Yeah, lovely. Mm. So you are you're a creative man. Right yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't I don't know where it comes from really. I wasn't very good at school. I wasn't very academic. Mm. Um, and the only thing I was really I think the only GCSE I passed was English, right. randomly. So I think writing was always going to be a thing. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, at college I started getting into music more, and I met up with some guys that were also into music and we started a band and mm-hmm. and I was into like writing music and then lyrics and stuff like that as well and we kind of like most things I've done I've kind of like learned along the way like learned on the job kind of thing you mm-hmm. know because I wasn't particularly great at playing the guitar but I kind of learned to play the guitar mm-hmm. and I never wanted to play other people's songs I think there was lots of cover bands when I was at college and I never wanted to play other people's stuff I always wanted to write my own stuff Mm-hmm. so yeah so it's kind of been learning along the way yeah yeah and wh- where's sort of your books and the writing fitted into that part of the journey well I kind of did yeah so I did music for quite so from college kind of onwards and then I really really wanted to become that was the that was the dream to become a professional musician and tour with the band and stuff and then and we and I did that for a number of years and then the band broke up oh, oh no yeah um <laughs> We'd done some really big, heavy touring and like big, some big festivals and stuff. And I think it's just, I think we're just getting to a point where, I don't know, we were probably getting on each other's nerves a little bit. Oh, really? It was one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't, we weren't quite getting, we weren't quite making it. We had a management deal and we'd released a couple of VPs, but we hadn't quite moved up to the next level. And I think it was just a point where it's a kind of a make or break kind of moment. And I think. Uh-huh. We decided to break um and so the singer kind of went and found a new job to do and he got into that and so yeah we just so yeah broke up so then um and then I didn't know what I was sort of a bit lost for a while creatively mm. um and I was working just working in retail and kind of bumbling along not really trying to find my way a little bit mm. creatively I, I was still doing stuff with like one of the members of the band and we were still writing but we kind of knew then though almost immediately that it was going to be just become a hobby though it wasn't going to be right we'd gone from being like yeah just really wanting to make it and then we almost kind of like overnight it was kind of like actually this isn't going to be a thing I'm going to do long term uh-huh. and then I found out my wife was pregnant and we were going to have a 
have a child so I think that's what really started uh, the idea of writing and wanting to write something for him as a sort of special thing that would be something we could do together you know because what I love about children's books in particular is that um, is that having that time together that story time which mm. is always very special mm. um, a special time to sort of download with each other and talk about various different things um, and so that was a that was kind of my dream was then to like write a story for him Oh, lovely. Mm. And what was the first story that you wrote? So I really struggled at first when I was trying to come up with ideas for it because the ideas are the hardest thing, really. Um, although writing in general is hard, but, mm. yeah, coming up with ideas. And I was working, like I say, I was working in retail, I was working in a toy shop, which sounds really... It was really fun, actually. I used to love, like yeah, fun. I really loved that <laughs> job, actually. But I was really struggling to come up with ideas, and I was starting to look around at other people's work, seeing how they crafted... You know, because I'd been got, I'd done poetry and like written lyrics and stuff like that. But obviously, it's very different mm. from writing a children's book, and especially a narrative. And so, I one day, I remember one day I was at at work and I went out on my lunch break. I used to go for walks, and I still do now. I go for walks if I'm sort of having any creative um, sort of issues. And so, I went up to. I used to work in this town called Lewis, and there's lots of really nice um, charity shops that sell really nice books and clothes and all sorts of things. And I was in this one particular charity shop and I found this book by an author called Shel Silverstein, who's an American author. He's kind of like... So you go in schools in, in England, you say, Roald Dahl, everyone knows who Roald Dahl is. Mm -hmm. In America, Shel Silverstein's the same, has the same oh, impact. Okay. So every, every child has got a Shel Silverstein book in their, in, their, in their library, you know, at home and at school. He's really popular. But I'd never heard of him, and he does these kind of kooky illustrations and sort of nonsense poetry, kind of Spike Milligan-esque. Yeah. Very short, funny. And it turned out he'd written, like, lyrics for Johnny Cash and stuff like that, so he was a great lyricist as well. And it's just this fantastic book. It's called A Light in the Attic. Mm -hmm. And I just started reading it in the shop, and it just suddenly, like, a, like one of those light bulb moments. And I was like, oh, this is, this is what I want to do. This is exactly what I want to write. So I ran back to work and I wrote my first story, which was about dinosaurs. Okay. Which is actually just about to be re-released um, in next spring. So, so yeah. So that was that was how it started, really. So and then and then and yeah. And then there was the the sort of floodgates open. And I started writing all the time then, and it was like one of those amazing moments, you know, when you kind of think, oh, this is it. This this is what I found my thing. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So were you always quite creative then from very little? Um, I don't think I was, no. I don't really remember. I say it wasn't really until I got... Because I, I, I never really found my thing at school. I was quite sporty. Mm. Um, I used to really like athletics and I kind of wanted to be... Um, I think I wanted to be a footballer. I really, I've always been in a football. But no, I kind of always knew I wasn't good enough. Mm. But it was a dream for a while. I remember going to see the school... Um, careers officer and he said what do you want to you know what what are you into what do you want to do and I was like oh, I just want to be a professional footballer and he I think he I think he must have seen me play because <laughs> because he was kind of like hmm are you sure <laughs> wow. all those moments when you know it must have been really hard for him to like crushing his child you know uh, and I remember thinking no maybe he's right and he sort of like was trying to persuade me to become a physio or something like that and I was like no I'm going to be a professional footballer how, how dare you suggest I could be anything less 
but obviously he was right. Um, so yeah, so there's there's funny there's moments you have in when you know when it sort of when someone sort of spells it out to you a little bit, not directly, but you kind of you kind of realise or have a moment of realisation that actually the thing that you want to do is not actually the thing that you end up doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's quite an early um, age to be told that you're. You can't follow your dream of being a footballer, right? So I know, and there's a kind of like there's a concept now, but you know, like I've read things about like the ten thousand hours kind of thing, where you can like, you know, oh, yeah. if you practice enough, you yeah. can get good at something. Yeah, I'm not sure about the professional footballer thing, but uh, so in theory, you could like you can put your mind to anything, but th- yeah, obviously that wasn't yeah, thing. and it wasn't that you wanted to be a writer from very young. No, just, not at all. No, young. never. I mean, if like I say, if you said to me, yeah. Uh, I don't know uh, even a teenage me I was going to say I was going to go younger then but like even a teenager me like you end up being a writer doing book, doing podcasts and being in a band I would have been I would have thought no, what are you talking about that's <laughs> like I'd never I'd never never thought about any of those things yeah you know so that's so yeah so I think sport was the thing I was really into and then yeah that didn't work out so I kind of did, I was very lost actually I think the college years and I really struggled at yeah, I think I really struggled because I, I, I didn't do very well in my GCSEs and then I went to college because everyone else went to college. Yeah, I was thinking I was just lost kind of in life generally. Home life wasn't great and mm. I kind of started, you know, you start drinking, you start going out. Yeah. And I mean, I had the band kind of started around that time, but what I was going to do in life, I didn't, I was, I was, yeah, I wasn't, I was very lost actually. Yeah. yeah. The undercurrent to all of this, mm. there's, You've got a quite similar story to me, mm. um, as in being a bereaved child quite mm. early on. And also, we both lost our mums early mm. on. I was 15, but you were only six at the time, mm. weren't you? Um, and I wonder, because I had a very similar experience with school, mm. where I, I at GCSE age, was like, I don't want to do this. I don't really know what I'm going to do. I can't see a future for mm. me because, well, this horrendous thing's just happened mm-hmm. with losing my mum. So... Um, but that actually happened like in my exam period. But I do wonder well, okay. if, you know, ber- with bereavement of, and loss of a parent, whether the impact of feeling quite lost kind of p- uh, persists in life. I don't know. If, what was your experience of losing your mum at six? Well, obviously being so young, um, I think I was probably, my brother was older, my brother's six years older than me, so he was sort of 11, 12 at the time. And I think he probably bore the brunt of stuff a lot more than I did in regards to, he was a lot more aware. I think I was shielded a lot um, being so young. And yeah, moddy-coddled probably quite to a certain extent. Mm. Um, it didn't really, talk, it wasn't really talked about either. I remember even the day my mum died, um, I remember it was quite near Christmas. I remember um, bounding down the stairs, you know, like full of the joys. You know, I think it was, it was the seventeenth of December she passed away. You know, and all the Christmas decorations are up. Are you excited? I finished school, and I remember going into the into the living room. My dad was there, clearly upset. And my nan, um, his mum, who was a real character, she was clattering around in the I remember it distinctly because she was clattering around in the kitchen like I think she must have broken a pot of tea or something because it was just like this big crash and and 
just like, oh God, now what's she doing? You know, because she's mm. always like, just a calamity. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, I can look back now and think that's actually quite a funny moment in this, like, you know, I was about to sit down with my dad, he's about to tell me my mum's died and man, it's like, <laughs> like breaking crockery in the <laughs> kitchen. Um, yeah, and it was, and, and kind of all he said was mum's gone and that was it really. Mum's mm. gone and, you know, we didn't like, I don't, I mean, maybe he did, it's gone out of my mind. I mean, I distinctly remember that, but I don't remember any kind of like, um, do you need to talk or do you want to talk about it or what, should we do something or it, it was kind of like, that's it. And then, you know, almost felt like now I was kind of probably a grandparent probably came in and shepherded me away into mm. another room or something. So it was never really talked to. And even moving on from that, we didn't really... Certainly, I wasn't really talked to about it. Not that I re recall. In my memory, because obviously you don't really retain a lot of memories from that age. I kind of only remember that and then sort of bouncing to the to the funeral day. So, it's, yeah. you know, I don't have a lot of strong memories of, of that time particularly. Mm. Yeah, it's. I think it's like we talked about, it's, it does sort of pop out later on and mm. suddenly it hits you. Yeah. Like at a certain I'm trying to think when it really did hit me. Probably probably yeah, probably around eighteen, nineteen. Mm. I probably started to feel it a lot more. And there's also that real ambiguity around the wording of Mum's gone. Mm. Like what does that mean to a six year old? Yeah, exactly. Is there mm. is there meaning to that? You might have been thinking she's gone where? To the shops or Yeah. Is she coming back? I think I knew just because of um, I knew she'd be unwell. She was okay. she was getting um, she was in hospital, you know. She'd gone into a coma. Oh wow! Although I only knew that later. Right. Um, my, in fact, I knew not that long ago. Actually, my brother told me that because it's always again it's because now my father's passed away as well. There's not really any. I haven't got anyone to give me an account of it. Mm. But yeah, the, it is. It's very vague, and I, I talked about this on another interview about it, the vagueness of that kind of response um, for my dad. But I guess he maybe he just didn't know how else to. Mm. It's almost like he didn't want to say the word "died." Yeah, yeah. And painful. it was much more soothing to say "gone" mm. than than "died" or "dead." I think I think actually thinking about it now, um, I did have a problem with those words. As a, throughout my life, say dead and died. I think, and even now, if I say it, it gives me a bit of a shiver. Mm, mm. And that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm really okay about talking about death and and dying. And it's, I know it's part of our life cycle. But yeah, there's still a kind of, and I don't know if it's an English thing, maybe. We're just a bit kind of a, yeah. <laughs> averse to those words. Just skirt around it. Yeah. Be quite ambiguous. It's it's interesting. So you're obviously the youngest in your family. Mm. And, um, my experience, I'm the eldest. You're the eldest, okay. And being a girl was sort of put into the mother role mm. very early on. But I know for my younger siblings, you know, there was that ambiguity as well. And the my my youngest sister was nine. Okay. At the time. Yeah, so very young. Yeah. And she had the same thing of, is she coming back? You know, she didn't really process mm. that she, actually dead means gone, or you know that gone means not coming back yeah yeah um and it took till much much later to process that probably like you're talking five years to say yeah. oh she's not coming back 
which is just huge, isn't it, for a child? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, in in the sort of spirit of the podcast, yeah. is there anything that you would share with your younger self or even with the people around you in how to manage situations like that? Because it can be really difficult. Well, my wife, who also has lost her father in her teen years, um, and I have always been really open with our children about it. So, like, you know, from a young age, I think kids go through... Um, an age where they're kind of intrigued about death. I don't know mm-hmm. if they learn something that perhaps, perhaps it's talked about during social studies at, at primary school or something. But certainly there is a a natural inquisitiveness about death and dying. And so we've always been fairly open with them about you know where their grandparents have gone. So you know they've still got one grand. Uh, my wife's mum is still alive, so they've still got one. She's, she's remarried so they've got a set of grandparents but they've always been intrigued about where my parents have gone and like you know my wife's um real father so we've always been tried to be fairly open with them about it from an early age and I would say that that is probably something yeah definitely to, I mean obviously we've talked about it this morning being open and talking and having those conversations mm. would have really helped I think just to process it yeah um and not think okay we're just you know cotton wool around that and put a band-aid on it and it'll be it will hopefully it'll heal itself Mm. um and then you know you look under the band-aid many years later yeah and it's there's a weeping wound (laughs) under there that's gushing out and yeah and you haven't been able to yeah heal at all Mm. and so i think that is so yeah, if I could say something to the people around, I would say that yeah, have those discussions and talk openly about those things before and after. I mean, I think that's the thing. There was no prep. We, my mum had been terminally ill. I mean, we had an old video actually of my mum on because she was a local councillor. So there's a there was a video which is really nice to have of me and her on the local news program, and um, it's her talking about it. And she, she knew she was terminally ill, so you know. And she talks about coping with it. Now, if I'd seen that when I was that age, I probably had a chance, but I don't. I was never shown it until much later in life. Right. Um, so you had absolutely no preparation no, for the fact not that at she all. was going to. No. So no real closure or no with her. Or Whereas if there'd been some sort of preparation in place, yeah. like you know, mummy's really, you know, she might not. When she goes into hospital, I remember saying goodbye to her for the last time by noon known you know again that was kind of like I didn't know it was the last time I was going to see her but probably everyone else around knew that was going to be the last time so it is yeah yeah and we were sort of saying earlier how I think when you're a child it can be your difficult feelings trigger off big difficult feelings in adults that they don't really want to feel yeah exactly it's like your loss as a little person is really difficult for adults who want to just fix it and make it better yeah make you not feel sad um and in that sense we kind of tend to take adults feelings a bit more seriously than we do Mm. children's and children can tend to be shut down in their feelings or yeah absolutely talk yeah and also maybe a bit of selfishness like i can't be dealing with this child as well I've got to do I'm dealing with all this stuff yeah you know I'm doing my own stuff yeah I've got to deal with the child as you know I'm not saying that's that sounds pretty brutal but you know it could could have been yeah and it could be a subconscious thing right we, yeah we do all sorts of things to protect ourselves yeah yeah of course from feeling yeah yeah, feelings. yeah 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 
It's like what you were saying about um, not having much memory. For, mm. for the brain does amazing things for children to help them not feel stressed. Yeah, yeah, of course. Blanking out trauma. Yeah. And not remembering it. Um, so yeah, it, it brings up all sorts of stuff. So I guess it's it's tough to know really how to have those conversations with children and use appropriate language. Mm. But I suppose what you're saying is there has to be a level of honesty. Yes. And you kind of have to be straightforward with what you're actually saying. Yeah, the language. Yeah, yeah. Basically, mm. to the base thing of the language needs to be like, yeah, like you say, more straightforward and actually spell it out a little bit. Yeah. You know, and yes, it might sound like a brutal way of doing things, but I think honesty is so important with children. Could we just, you know, otherwise, yeah, you create something that's going to be damaging later yeah and also children have these amazing little brains where they'll take something that they've heard and create a whole fantasy around what that actually means Um, and it can go off in all kinds of tangents so yeah so that sounds like really good advice Mm. so in your book little bell in the moon that's a book about mortality and Mm. and death i guess in a sense yeah so i start again Having convers like I said earlier, having honest conversations with our children about death and dying and life cycles and stuff, um, and we started having conversations about my mom and and you know he asked what where is she now kind of thing and we're not religious in a way so it was kind of like you know she's in our hearts and that much and he we were walking to school for um, they had like a bedtime story thing so it was really not nice sort of winter evening. And uh, the the moon was out full, and the stars in the sky, and everything. And he just looked up at the sky and said, "Daddy, when you look at a star, it touches your heart." Just really some sort of profound, weird, like kind of thing to, for for a six year old. So it was very sweet. And I was like, oh, "What do you, you know?" Kind of what do you mean? And he was sort of saying about, "So well, like your mum," you know. And I kind of like the idea of there's that whole thing about like we turn to stardust when we die and that kind of thing. So that kind of was the basis of the story was and then just a a story about little bell who goes on these trips with the moon and has this very fun fulfilled life sees the world and has these joyous times sees the world in a beautiful way and and it's a life cycle so it's yeah you, we see her um you know have a ch- her own child get old and then she passes away and goes and becomes a star in the sky and rests with the moon and really, I wrote it because I wanted to, other people to be, perhaps have that chance to have that conversation, mm. even just to just have the conversation about death in a in the safe environment of a bedtime story. Because mm. I think it's such a brilliant part of the day that we you know we still do with our children is reading to them before bedtime, because it is a chance for them to download about their days. And actually, if you are reading books that have some message in them, then it's a chance for them to open up about them or discuss any worries they might have or just if they're intrigued about something mm. um, and that's the amazing thing about sort of picture books and stuff you can you can talk about big topics for at a very young age and mm. you know obviously again going back to my own age we didn't have any books like that I'm sure when there might have been books like that around but certainly I wasn't introduced to any and that would have been another way of mm. um, talking about those those experiences mm. so that that was kind of the, the idea of it and hopefully you know and, and 
hopefully it has helped some people. I mean, I've had loads of messages since it came out from people saying, oh, I bought it because we've got a relative that's passed away or we've got a relative that's terminally ill or whatever it might. So we can have those discussions with people. It's been really, um, because some, some of the messages have brought me to tears at points. So they've mm. been really poignant and, and it's been amazing really the, how many people have used it for that. Um, as a resource for that kind of stuff because mm. it's you know so that's great because that's kind of what it was for yeah that sounds brilliant and I suppose mm. it'd be good for any child to have access to that but whether they're facing bereavement or not yeah because actually it's part of life absolutely life, yeah 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 exactly and you know it's a very gentle rhyming story it's nothing you know it's it's very um you know, it'd be a nice, relaxing kind of read mm. at any time of day. It doesn't have to be at bedtime, but for yeah, for people to to have that conversation. And I think that's the thing. We it's hard for adults, so we as we spoke earlier to have conversations like that with children. And maybe this is a a way in. Mm. Yeah, that's safe for them. Yeah, and on their level. Yeah. So I know in, in a couple of your books, there's kind of this heroic grandma figure. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly in the books about um, where there are monsters and, you know, the grandma steps in and she's kind of a hero. I wondered if that was reflective of your own experience. Yeah, it totally, actually. Yeah, I had really good relationships with both grandparents. I had um, my mum's grandparents, um, Bill and Queenie, were fantastic. And actually, mum, yeah, my dad wasn't the best um, person. <laughs> He wasn't the best person. He wasn't right. just a. He wasn't just a, a very good dad. He was also not a very good person. So um, they stepped in mm. big time, and helped a lot. And I used to stay with them quite a lot. And actually, Queenie was was like a mum really. Mm. Um, and so I was lucky in that respect because not everyone has that. And then my father's mum, the, the the smasher of plates and, and crockery, who <laughs> was a bit of a a legend really because she was so funny um she used to take us on day trips to london and stuff like that mm -hmm. and yeah she would she'd live with live with us for a long time actually she sort of moved in and then we couldn't get rid of her <laughs> um, but she was funny to have around terrible at cooking um yeah she used to make fried breakfast and they were just revolting oh really yeah Is i mean go wrong well yeah <laughs> You go wrong with the five breakfast, but like the sausages would be all mashed up. <laughs> it's just like this, yeah, just terrible. So yeah, she was a real character. Mm. So I had these like other, you know, I had these other people in my life, and yeah, and certainly, funny enough, actually, in um, the Fierce and Beastie, which is my first picture book, mm. there is a granny that um, wields an axe, and that is her definitely, and my my paternal grandmother, because yeah, she was feisty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, terrible language as well. Like she was from the north. I'm not. I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not tarring like the north, north <laughs> with this. But she was from Durham, and she just had really. She was just quite an uncouth woman. Right. She was great. I loved her. Yeah, lots, and it was great to hang out with her. She used to make me sit stand outside the betting shop. This was this is like the summer holidays. I'd be standing outside the betting shop where she'd go in and place her bets on the on the greyhound racing. Right. And yeah, and I used to have to stand out. So it was the days when the betting shops had those tassely coloured tassels over the door. Uh -huh. So you could kind of see in like this horrible smoky 
oh, it's horrible. And yeah, I could see her in the far side with her little pencil and her pen, like, like yeah. all her bets. Um, she sounds like a character. And actually, yeah, I, she's, she, she's, um, so my, my next book, 152 Days, mm. she figures quite big, big in that. Mm. Um, yeah, she's a, she's a major character in that. So yeah, so yeah, grandparents have come up a lot in, or grandmothers actually, yeah, have come up a lot in, yeah, because they filled a void yeah. that was there. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's probably the case for lots of kids, mm. especially even, you know, whether bereaved or not, um, with parents who work a lot, grandparents yeah, of course. are yeah, yeah. often just secondary parents, aren't they, mm. these days? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Very much so. So your book, 152 Days, mm. then, so this is a different type of book, mm. not not a children's book. Why don't no. you tell us a little bit about yeah, the I'd story? Love to, yeah, I'd love to, yeah. So, yeah, it started off... Um, it kind of, it's sort of semi-memoir, I guess, or semi-autobiographical. Although there is still quite a lot of fiction in there. Um, obviously, it's, um, the main protagonist isn't named in it, but it's um, a teenage version of me, I guess. And yeah, dealing with having a terminally ill mother and then a father who is estranged and um, is sort of descending into a world of alcoholism, mm. which again is... Um, similar to my own experiences and then yeah and then he has to sort of hang around with his nutty grandmother um, mm. hanging there outside the betting shop <laughs> um, and then he meets this uh, so when I was around the time my mum was um, coming to the end of her life I had really bad pneumonia and I had to go into hospital and she'd be upstairs in one of the rooms and I'd be downstairs having physiotherapy so I had to have because I had so much crap on my lungs I had to have physio to get it out so yeah so the protagonist in the story is having physio and he meets this physio who kind of so that's his sort of more the fictional part of it is yeah he sort of meets this physio who becomes a sort of light in his life a bit of hope and he finds sort of he sort of falls in love with her but it's um yeah she sort of brings a lightness to his life and sort of allows him to see the world in a less sort of dark place so that's kind of the concept of the book. Mm. And is there a reason that you wrote it from a teenage perspective rather than a child? Um, I wanted well because the themes in it are more uh, are for older. I mean, it's actually going to be released as an adult book now because we we felt that the the themes were adult really, um, right. although the protagonist is teenager. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, I kind of always kind of hoped it would be more of an adult book because it's there's an there's. I think it really fits well for an adult audience. Although I think, like, you know, older teens will will probably find something in it as well. Mm. But I think it was more because I wanted to write about those feelings I was having as a teenager. Mm. Well, like I was saying, I was like 18, 19, those feelings that started to come out about um, loss and death and bereavement and all the other adjectives I can use for it. Um, and, and it's about those feelings and I wanted to write about those feelings. Mm. Um, so that's kind of why I... I made it a, an older hmm. child and so I wonder if you had some advice for your teenage self yeah I think it's the thing that I get told all the time and it's it will be okay yeah hard to um, believe it in the moment it is it? it's really hard and it's hard to take that on board as well yeah. sometimes even now like it's gonna be okay and generally it is okay but you know you can't know that when you're in the moment of it yeah but it would be to, you know, keep going. Mm. It will be okay. Because, yeah, generally it is okay. Yeah. It's kind of like keeping your head 
up enough. It sounds like the sort of thing you'd put on a meme, doesn't it? But <laughs> with a with a with a picture of someone really clever on it. Um, but yeah, but yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. it is. It's, it, it's knowing that there is light. Mm. There is light in all the darkness. There will be a period of light, mm. and it's knowing that you can keep going towards it. Mm. So I wonder sometimes about. Um, grief whether we as children you know it's it's confusing mm. it's difficult and we're told to shut down the feelings sometimes because it's it's inconvenient or difficult for other people to mm-hmm. deal with but then at what point can you start feeling the feelings because mm. they're still there whether yeah, you yeah. felt them or not they're in there somewhere they're, the experience is held in the body mm. and um, I think sometimes we can be so used to numbing that we disconnect from the feelings mm. altogether. And for me, I think that's where depression has kicked in in yeah. the past. Is It's almost like a, I can't feel these feelings because they're so unbearable that I just need to numb and get to get through the day. But that numbness is where there is no mm. joy. That's where it's hard to find the light. But if we can go through the feelings and actually feel them, there is definitely light on the other side and freedom mm. from those feelings. But hard to know that in the moment. Oh, totally. Mm. And I think you're right, it's that disconnect. Mm so hard sometimes thinking about it Mm. I mean I think it's a daily thing as well I think you know I would say there's not a day goes by that I don't think about my parents at some at some point Mm. and it's just I think you were saying it's acknowledging those moments Mm. and not and not shoveling them away and think it's okay I'll deal with that later yeah because it's you gotta deal with it then sometimes and it's not always easy if you're in like Morrison's (laughs) <laughs> and suddenly you start to to feel it yeah because you've seen I don't know oh a packet of bourbons we used to like bourbons when yeah. I was you know or whatever it might be something springs to mind you know and you start you know it does. it's amazing the brain isn't it it's just it has this capacity to flip things up now and again mm. so it's not always easy in those moments but I think you do have to acknowledge them because yeah like you say shoving them back down Shoving it back in the box. Yeah. And hoping that it'll be, oh, I'll leave that for another day. It's just no way to live. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like small steps, small actions every day to walk towards mm. something that's a bit more hopeful. Possibly. Yeah, and grief is a journey that we just continue to go on. Mm. I think there's no end to it. Mm. Yeah. You can't say, oh, well, I'm, I'm fine, I'm over that now. Yeah. It doesn't really work like that. No. Not in my experience. Maybe it does for some people. But I think it's a con. Yeah, for me, it's a continual journey that I'm going on. And some days there's hills, and some days there's valleys. Some days it's just walking along a straight road. But you know. Mm. I wonder, do you find that writing your books has been, in a way, healing for you and cathartic? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very cathartic. I mean, writing 150 days was hard. There was. But there were some dark days. Yeah. And I did have to take breaks. Yeah. I mean, I took a break for about three months at one point because it was... And do you know what? It wasn't even like... There's there's, there's, um, there's scenes in it. Uh, there's a death scene in it, which is very um, graphic. But it wasn't those days. I was fine with those. Mm. It was it was other kind of memories that might pick up. Um that were harder. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so it's funny how, again how, you, how your brain picks out certain things that upset you more than others. But yeah, mm. so it was hard. But yeah, it was incredibly cathartic. And um, I've done a few talks recently and events where I've read passages from it. And that, that's been really cool as well. That's been really helpful mm. to actually read it out loud mm. to people. So it's like acknowledging your experience. Mm. Like it, it did happen. Yeah. And it's okay that it happened. And it happens to lots of people. Yeah. But we don't necessarily talk about that stuff, the yeah. difficult stuff. Yeah. No. And again, I mean, I think we're, we're at a good place at the moment. I think we are talking about these things more. And there are, you know, podcasts, for example, are a great way of... You know, there's several podcasts about grief and stuff now. Grief cast and um, grief moments and some other ones. So we are getting better at talking about these things with each other. Mm. But there's a long way to go still, I think. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose it's, it's good to know how we can deal with it as early as possible yeah. with the kids. So that's really where I know that our listeners will be thinking about, well, how could I mm. s- facilitate conversations with parents, with their, with their own children when they're going through difficult things and I'm when people ask me I had someone come up to me recently and say I've got a I'm working with a mum who's terminally ill Mm. with cancer how do we tell the children who are 15 and 8 and I was like I don't actually know that there's a right answer to that question and I think it's individual but Mm. I I do think that as you said being straightforward and being honest at an age-appropriate level Mm. and using tools like your book um to help, especially the younger children, understand mm. through metaphor and explore through play, even. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The life and death cycle is is really healing in itself. Yeah, and I think schools are doing a lot more now. Mm. Our, our local primary is really good for that. Yeah, brilliant. So, what other bits of advice did you have, or what other things do you wish you'd known? And it doesn't necessarily need to be around the grief stuff, but maybe more generally. Hmm. I feel incredibly lucky, really. I do get to do really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> would I have done anything differently? Maybe not. Mm. Um, I guess maybe there's all those, those things where you think, oh, I could have started doing that earlier. Mm-hmm. It's always one thing you think, oh, I should have started writing earlier, or I should have started the ba- learning the guitar earlier, or I should have started doing podcasts 10 years ago, or I should have started... Mm-hmm. But things kind of tend to happen at the right times, I mm. think. You know, when you're in the right place. So, I don't think I'd change anything, really. Mm. I think everything, I'm really grateful for everything I've got and have. And actually, I'm grateful for the experiences I've had, really, because they have made me the person I am, you know. Mm. It's hard to say that you'd be grateful for going through grief, but... To a certain extent, there's a there's a gratitude of going through it, mm. of getting through it. Mm. Whereas obviously some people don't get through it. My dad didn't ever get through it. Right. So I think I'm, it's nice to be able to say that I, like I said earlier, it's a journey. I'm still going on it, but to still be going on the journey is a is is a good thing. It's a blessing. Yeah. In a way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know. So I'm. Yeah. So advice, I don't know. It's quite interesting what you said about kind of wishing you'd started earlier, that, mm. that sort of thing. 
we both said this morning when we met, you know, we sort of give it a go and see what happens yeah, yeah, <laughs> type yeah. of people. But I think sometimes if you've experienced something very traumatic in childhood, it can be really hard to just try things that mm. you can get stuck in the freeze part of like, I don't know where to go next, mm-hmm. which can be a real part of PTSD even. Yeah, yeah. PTSD. Um, so I guess there's part of just, you know, just giving things a go and acknowledging if you've experienced death or loss, that life is finite and we only have yeah. a certain amount of time that we can do the things that we want to do that light us up. Yeah. I think actually <clears throat> death has taught me to do stuff. Mm. Not that, I mean, you know, life's too short kind of thing, <laughs> which is sounds so cheesy doesn't it but it but it is it's true it's true and actually yeah why not have a go at things and do things and follow your dreams sometimes doesn't matter if it doesn't work out mm-hmm. they're all worse things mm. i sometimes think about um when i'm in scenarios i always think of what's the worst thing that could happen you know like if you're doing an interview or i don't mean a podcast interview i mean like a job interview or or you're after you. You're doing some, going for something that you really, really want, or you. I don't know doing a gig, and what's the worst thing that can happen? And generally, it's not actually that bad. Mm-hmm. So why not just go for it? Don't be put off because mm. the worst case scenarios aren't normally that bad, mm. unless you're doing a bungee jump or something. But I guess also, yeah, in the process of doing something creative or something that you want to do you can end up impacting on lots of people in a really positive way yeah absolutely making people's lives better well hopefully yeah yeah even if it's just to take their minds off something Mm -hmm. you know a bit of light a bit of joy yeah i've started so in the last two years or so i've dedicated myself bar a few anti-trump tweets um (laughs) trying to be super positive on social media okay because i think actually as a platform uh well all all social media platforms they're so toxic Mm. actually we can make those places better Mm -hmm. there's so much good stuff i mean we wouldn't be doing this podcast without twitter yes true. um i wouldn't be doing my podcast without twitter um so i think yeah so i'm trying to dedicate myself to doing more positive things and maybe having more positive impact on other people's lives if I can rather than just being noisy and arguing (laughs) and shouting at people because I don't agree with them yeah 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 absolutely that's a lovely thing to dedicate time to yeah yeah exactly and I think we could all be be a bit kinder to each other yeah Um, so yeah so I'm that's kind of something I'm trying to push forward in the next few years if Mm -hmm. I can Positivity on social media. Mm-hmm. So everyone should give you a follow then for a please give me a follow. You well, yeah, you'll get lots of positive <laughs> tweets from me. Yeah, definitely. And that's something everyone needs in their life. So oh, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. it's you know we're, we are going through slightly darker times. Uh-huh. But, I mean, politically we are. So I think you know mm-hmm. we're at each other quite a lot. Mm. And they and it's always exacerbated on social media, isn't it? So yeah, I think be nice to make those kind of forums nicer places mm. definitely and the th- i suppose the thing that we all have in common is that we need relationships and we need connection yeah, we need connection yeah it's such a simple thing really mm-hmm. 
I try and follow back everybody that follows me, which is a bit of a weird thing. <clears throat> but I want it to be a two-way thing. Yeah. Because it's all very well people just following me and me not following them, but then you kind of have very... I'm just talking and they're not able to talk back. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not able to see their, what they're saying. So I made it a bit of an effort when I... A conscious effort when I started using these something to make sure I follow back as many people as I can because also it means I've got a really weird timeline. <laughs> <laughs> Very close, yeah. <laughs> but you know, because I just think it's a two way street connection, isn't it? Mm. Full very well people just coming to I don't know, logging on just to see what I say, but I want to see what they're saying as well. Yeah. So, yeah, lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. Well, no, thank you for having me on. Thank you. It was really interesting to hear about your experiences. And Well, thank you very much. This is great. I think this is going to be a great podcast. Oh, I'm glad to hear yeah, that. So. Thank you so much. Well, we'll, uh, you know, we'll leave it there. Yeah. And I highly recommend anyone who is working with children or families to get a hold of a copy of Little Bell and the Moon um, because it is a really lovely story and helps children to explore death and mortality through metaphor in a really safe and practical way um, can be used as a really nice tool so do that and also remember to give Giles a follow on Twitter and he will follow you back Um, so thanks so much for tuning in for today and look forward to catching you again on the next podcast (laughs) 